All right, well, good afternoon. And thank you for coming out this afternoon. You know, it's interesting. I, I was at Advent Hope for eight years, and this is the first series of meetings I've ever done at Advent Hope. <laughs> so um, I guess that's the advantage of coming back as a visitor. Um, but I still feel very much part of Advent Hope, so it's great to be here. Um, Carlos already gave a, a good opening prayer, so I will forego that. You know, what I was talking about this morning about revival and being crucified with Christ definitely challenges me personally. And I think the thing that really struck me is when I came to the realization that if I need to be revived, and if by definition revival means to bring back to life that I therefore need to admit that I am dead spiritually before I can ex experience revival, which tells you something about, unfortunately, our condition largely as a people. Because <clears throat> if we're doing evangelism, and we haven't experienced revival, we are dead spiritually, so to speak, and we will bring people into the church at the level we are at. And if we are setting a standard for them that is not according to the standard of Scripture, then that's how the standard eventually gets lowered over time in the church. You know, if you look at the... Er the early Christian church. The early Christian church, their command was to go and make disciples of all nations. In many cases now, we are making members of our churches who are not really disciples because we are not, because we are dead spiritually. And we feel an obligation to at least go out and do some evangelism, but we need revival, so what we have to offer is our own spiritually dead experience, and so people come in, and they only go as far as what we share with them. So that's why the appeal from the General Conference for revival and reformation is so timely. That's why their statement that if the trend continues, we have no reasonable hope of Jesus coming in our lifetime is such a poignant statement. Because our current evangelistic trends, I mean, let's, let's be real here. I mean, you go to certain evangelistic meetings and um, basically we try to water down the message as much as we can to make it as palatable as possible so that people want, will want to join the Seventh-day Adventist Club. And you're not advancing God's kingdom by taking that mentality. I mean, I went to a series of meetings where the spirit of prophecy was never talked about. People came into the message or were baptized who didn't even know who Ellen White was. Now, in reality, what you're doing then is you are deceiving people, and then they find out later, what, you have a prophet? What's this all about? 
Um, so when we have true revival, we will be unashamed of our message, and it will be a message that has power because the life of Christ is shining forth through us, and people will want what we have, and they will have no problem accepting Ellen White because what she says corresponds with what the Bible says, and it corresponds with how we live our lives. The reason why we have trouble with Ellen White so many times is because we do not follow her counsel. And so then we go out and do evangelism, and then people are like, oh, you mean I would have to do this or that? So revival and reformation, with revival comes reformation, and that is the greatest need of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So <clears throat> the two parts this afternoon, the first part is the is the, the title is 1888 and its continued rejection. This is the history of 1888. And what I hope that you will see in this presentation is not just the detail of the history that I'm going to talk about. You will s see yourself and ask yourself, where do I fit in the spirit of this history? So I'm going to start off with a very famous quote from Ellen White. It's found in Testimonies to Ministers, page 91. If you're going to talk about 1888, you have to read this quote. This is a letter that was written to the General Conference President, O.A. Olson, in 1895. And probably many of you have heard this quote. The Lord, in his great mercy, sent a most precious message to his people through elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the world. It presented justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Did you notice that statement? The righteousness of Christ is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many had lost sight of Jesus. That's why we need to see Christ on the cross every day. Otherwise, we will never be crucified with him. They needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love for the human family. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice, and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. Now, if you've studied prophecy, what happens when the latter rain and loud cry are, are given? Persecution. Yeah, persecution, and right after that, Jesus comes. Okay? So, if this message was to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure, the obvious question is, in 2011, has that happened? Do we see the outpouring of the latter rain under the loud cry with a proclamation that Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen? No, that's, we're still giving the message, but it's not being demonstrated as seen in Revelation 18, which leads to the obvious conclusion that something went wrong with 1888 in the history. So now we're going to get into the history. <clears throat> so that's the quote. Ellen White makes it very clear that the message was a most precious message. She talks about how it 
demonstrated the righteousness of Christ, affirming obedience to all the commandments. It affirmed learning to look to Jesus, his matchless charms, his changeless love, and that this is the loud cry message of the third angel. And so as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in the proclamation of the third angel's message. That's what we've been trying to do for many years, and yet we still have yet to see the latter rain poured out. Here the General Conference is making an appeal for revival and reformation, and the question is, will we heed the call of the Holy Spirit to receive the latter rain this time? You know, the General Conference in 1973 and 1974, the annual council made appeals two years in a row, saying nearly exactly the same thing as the 2010 annual council appeal. That's about a generation ago. So, 36, 37 years. So, how many cycles in the wilderness do Seventh-day Adventists need? The children of Israel had one generation of 40 years. Seventh-day Adventists, we are working on our fourth cycle now. So, let's take a look at the history now. <clears throat> so, what was 1888 really all about? You know, it all kind of got started because of the law in Galatians. The added law in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 and verse 24. And what's interesting is the brethren in the early days of Adventism, James White, J. and Andrews, Joseph Bates, Uriah Smith, they all taught that the law in Galatians was the moral law or the Ten Commandments. Now, before I go any further, how many of you have never heard about the issue about a, the dispute in Galatians about the law? Okay, so a handful of people. So what happens is, Seventh-day Adventists initially believe that the law that Paul's talking about in the book of Galatians is the moral law of the Ten Commandments, the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. And they ran into a problem when Protestant dispensationalists came along and said, yeah, we agree that the law in Galatians is the moral law, and according to Colossians, that law got nailed to the cross and we're under grace now. So, Seventh-day Adventists took a look at that and they said, wait a minute, how do we protect our understanding of the Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment, so that we will protect ourselves against a teaching that is going to lead people to receive the mark of the beast? I mean, that's a reasonable question, right? If people are teaching that the moral law in Galatians was nailed to the cross and according to the book of Colossians and that it's no longer binding, you would have to come up with a good answer. Well, their answer was to say that the law in Galatians was not the Ten Commandments at all. It was the law that was added, which was the ceremonial law, which were the feasts and all their burnt offering sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. And when Jesus died on the cross, that was done away with and the Ten Commandments is still binding. Now notice, most of what they said is true. It is true that the ceremonial law was done away with at the cross and that the Ten Commandments are still binding afterwards, but by twisting what Paul was getting at in the book of Galatians, they set themselves up for problems many years later. Now, it's interesting. <clears throat> in 1856, 
the father of E.J. Wagner. Now, again, I realize there may be a, a, some varying um, levels of understanding about this history. The two key preachers of the 1888 messages I read from the quote were E.J. Wagner and A.T. Jones. E.J. Wagner's father, J.H. Wagner, in 1856, writes an article where he says that the law in Galatians is actually the moral law. And Uriah Smith and James White got very upset. And James, or actually Ellen White then, has a vision and she writes a testimony reproving Wagner. And in this testimony, um, it's very interesting. It was clear at the time to everyone she sends this testimony, but 30 years later when the issue in 1888 comes up, she nor anyone else could find this testimony. So that creates a, a problem. But basically what she says in this testimony in 1856, she tells Wagner to follow the light that the Lord has given when it comes to dealing with differences of opinion. That's the best that we know that she said. She, and as far as she can remember from years later, she couldn't remember if she had said that the law in Galatians was the ceremonial law. And of course, she receives light later on as to what it was. So in the minds of the brethren, however, as a result of that testimony, in their mind, that settled the issue. Even though most likely Ellen White was just saying, Brother Wagner, J.H. Wagner, you need to be careful about how you stir up issues that are not in agreement among the brethren. In the minds of the brethren, they were saying, see, we were right. The law in Galatians is the ceremonial law only. It's not the Ten Commandments. So that's 1856. This thing goes underground for a number of years. And then something interesting happens in 1884, just four years before the 1888 General Conference. And this is a very crucial point to the story that is probably often overlooked. The president of the General Conference at that time was G George Butler, or also known as G.I. Butler. And he took it upon himself to write a series of articles in the Review and Herald from January 8th through June 3, 1884, and in these articles, he proposed that there were degrees of inspiration in Scripture. Now, how many of you had ever heard that? Okay, some of you have. So, Butler is saying, look, when you read the Bible, there's different degrees of inspiration. Some parts of Scripture are more inspired than others. And when we study the Bible carefully, we can figure out what's the most inspired parts and what's the less inspired parts. Now, this was the president of the General Conference. <laughs> so, you know, we look back to the good old days when Seventh-day Adventists were such good Adventists. 1884, our General Conference president is saying, oh yeah, there's, there's degrees of inspiration in the Bible. So, that happens in 1884. Now, this is very important because that series of articles really set the stage for what happened in 1888. Because even though Ellen White comes out and says, and she has several passages that um, counter that, I'm not going to um, read the quotes, but she had um, several passages that 
basically condemned everything that Butler said about degrees of inspiration. She said, all scripture, as the Bible says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So Butler says there's degrees of inspiration. Ellen White says, no, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So that's 1884. Now, for some reason, I guess you could say like father, like son in a way, E.J. Wagner decided to write about the law in Galatians as well. This time in 1884, same time that Butler's writing about degrees of inspiration to the Bible. <clears throat> Here we have um, E.J. Wagner. He writes a series of articles in Signs of the Times. Now, I think most of you, I mean, you've all heard of the Adventist Review and Signs of the Times. Those magazines still exist today. Now, what happened was, is in the 1880s, um, Wagner and Jones had, they, they were the ones who wrote the articles and signs of the times. Uriah Smith and Butler and others wrote in the Review and Herald. Ellen White wrote articles in both. Now, what happened was there seemed to be somewhat of a spirit of competition that developed between the editors of the Review Office and the editors of the Signs Office. Good Seventh-day Adventists coming into competition. Um, that shouldn't happen in our work, should it? Unfortunately, it still does. So Wagner, he decides to write about the book of Galatians, and he takes a different view from the traditional view. Um, and he, um, his articles made Uriah Smith and... G.I. Butler, very unhappy. Uriah Smith was the chief editor of the Review. G.I. Butler is the general conference president. So in 1886, G.I. Butler visits Healdsburg College in Northern California, kind of near where PUC is now. And he um, is told that strenuous efforts, quote unquote, strenuous efforts were being made by Jones and Wagner to indoctrinate the students that the law in Galatians was the moral law. So it's like people tell the president, hey, there's a conspiracy here. These guys are going behind your back and they're undermining the foundation of our faith. Now what happened by this point is that in the minds of the brethren, this was a settled issue for 30 years. The law in Galatians was the ceremonial law Case closed, that protects us from the teaching of the mark of the beast by the Protestant dispensationalists, and we're all good. Now, E.J. Wagner saying, no, when you study the gospel, the law is the schoolmaster, the moral law is a, the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, and now the leading brethren, Butler and Uriah Smith, they're like, this is heresy. And they, they felt very strongly about this. So this was no small issue. I mean, it's not like, um, I mean, to use the comparison, I mean, people have different views about the daily in the book of Daniel, and Ellen White says it's not a subject of vital importance. I mean, I've seen people get into heated arguments over even that issue. And yet these brethren believed that this was um, undermining the faith of Adventists. So at this time, 1886, when Butler hears about this, Ellen White happened to be on her two to three year trip through Europe where she spent some time in Europe and helped to raise up the churches throughout Europe. And so 
it wasn't like 2011 where you hear something and then you, s you send an email to Ellen White and half an hour later you get a response. <laughs> no. You have to write out a letter by hand, put it in the mail, and wait for the, the boat to carry it across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe. I mean, and then you have to wait for her to write out her response and for the boat to carry it back across the Atlantic Ocean so that you can hear what she has to say. I mean, what a difference, what a different era. Um, so, Butler wrote his first letter to Ellen White on June 20, 1886. And what he said in the letter was like, hey, don't you remember you received light that the law in Galatians is the ceremonial law, not the Ten Commandments. So he's just writing the prophet and saying, hey, just help us out here. These young guys here in California are causing some trouble. We need your help. Set the matter to rest and let's move on. So Ellen White immediately responds to Butler's letter. But again, this is interesting. She writes a letter that somehow never gets received and nobody has ever found it. All she knows is what she wrote, but she, you know, she sent the letter, somehow didn't make a copy of it as she often did. So she knows that she wrote the letter and she said, yeah, I sent you the letter, you never got it, what happened? So basically what she said later was, is all she said was she wrote, and it was actually addressed to Jones and Wagner, and she was protesting against them doing contrary to the light which God has given us in regard to all differences of opinion, which is actually very similar to what she said to J.H. Wagner in 1856. However, the letter was never received. This is 1886. So Jones and Wagner keep doing their thing about the law in Galatians being the moral law. Um, and so in the summer of 1886, Wagner published a nine-part series in Signs of the Times on Galatians 3. And regarding Galatians 3.24, which let me read to you what Galatians 3.24 says. When it comes to Galatians 3.24, which says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Wagner says of this that <clears throat> by no possibility can this refer to the ceremonial law. Now, in all honesty, was it um, in the best wisdom of Wagner to stir up this issue? Perhaps not. Per perhaps not the way that he was doing it. I mean, the brethren felt that Ellen White had settled the issue. But at the same time, I think Wagner was very sincere. And the other thing you have to realize, if you read the series of articles, Wagner's primary point about, the, about Galatians was not whether the law was the ceremonial law or the moral law. He felt it was just so logical that it was the moral law, but his main point was what justification by faith was. And it just so happened that he believed the moral law was, or that the law was the moral law, the Ten Commandments, not the ceremonial law. So he was just trying to get his view of the gospel out there. However, the brethren didn't see it that way, and of course, if you're Butler and you'd already written Ellen White and you don't know that she had sent a letter that never got sent, you're kind of wondering what's going on. So August 23 and November 16 of 1886, 
he writes her again. So that by now he's written three letters. And in his letter on November 16, he tells Ellen White that he planned to call our good signs brethren to an account. That's Jones and Wagner. For the way they have done in reference to some of the disputed points of our faith, the law in Galatians. So now you see this all-out controversy. And by now, we're leading up to the 1886 General Conference. So Butler, he hasn't heard anything from Ellen White, and he sends her this letter days before the 1886 General Conference session begins. And he's saying, I'm going to hold those good signs, brethren, to account for what they're saying. And what does he do? How does he hold them to account? He passes out an 85-page pamphlet entitled, The Law in the Book of Galatians. Is it the moral law, or does it refer to, to that system of laws peculiarly Jewish? You know, fortunately, modern authors don't typically have titles that long. Um, but he is basically declaring war on Jones and Wagner by the 1886 General Conference session. He's saying, we are going to stand by the, the way marks, the law in Galatians is the ceremonial law, and how dare these young guys from California go against what we have already known to be true. So in this pamphlet, he rebutted Jones and Wagner's views as the minority viewpoint, and he took shots at their, quote, vaunted doctrine of justification by faith. Now that's a problem because the doctrine of justification by faith that Jones and Wagner taught, Ellen White would later endorse as the third angel's message in verity. So here you have the president of the General Conference now actually coming down on the wrong side of justification by faith. He's saying those guys, they have this much vaunted doctrine of justification by faith. And um, then... Butler and the other leaders of the church orchestrated things where they formed a theological committee where they passed a resolution that forbid publication of views contrary to the fair majority of people unless the views had been ex examined by brethren of experience. They also pushed for a resolution to censure Jones and Wagner, but that resolution did not pass. So you can see that 1886 was also a very contentious general conference session. And then on December 16, 1886, Butler writes her again and he says, hey, we've never received any reply from you. And, you know, the church has been waiting for years to hear from you clearly about the law in Galatians. Why are you not replying? Well, Ellen White replies in a letter that she addressed to Jones and Wagner in 1887. And she attached copies to Butler and Uriah Smith. And um, what she said is interesting. She says, I have not read the position from either side. Okay? I haven't read Butler's 85-page pamphlet. I haven't read Wagner's articles and signs of the times. So, um, I haven't read your positions. And then she says she thought she had been shown in the past that J.H. Wagner, E.J.'s father, she thought she had been shown in the past that his position was wrong, but she couldn't find the testimony she had written. Nobody else 
could either, and her mind was not clear on the issue. And this is probably why she took so long to reply, because, I mean, Butler keeps writing her, hey, Jones and Wagner are teaching the law, and Galatians is ceremonial. Say something, say something, say something. Letter after letter after letter. And in the meantime, she's probably looking for that testimony from 1850s, and she can't find it. And at this point in time, the Lord hasn't given her a clear view. So she finally writes back because Butler is so agitated. It's like, well, I better say something. I mean, she did write earlier and the letter had been lost. Now, basically, what she says, she expressed concern that the two leading papers were in contention. Is that reasonable? It's like, this is, come on, guys, grow up. Signs and review, writing articles and rebuttal to each other. I mean, that's not a good Christian spirit. So she's not happy about that. And, and you know, she's rebuking Jones and Wagner, and she's rebuking Butler and Smith that they are in contention. But, of course, Butler and Smith think that they are right. So in their minds, hey, we're just standing for truth. Take it or leave it. Um, then she said... Jones and Wagner were too self-confident and less cautious than they should be, and she feared that Wagner had cultivated a love for discussions and contention like his father. And she said, especially at this time, should everything like differences be repressed and unity should be sought. Now let me read to you the other part of that letter that is also quite important that um, seems to... Uh, often not be mentioned. This is what she says, we have a worldwide message. So in other words, why are you fighting over this? The commandments of God and the testimonies of Jesus Christ are the burden of our work. To have unity and love for one another is the great work now to be carried on. From the Holy of Holies, there goes on the grand work of instruction. Christ officiates in the sanctuary. We do not follow him into the sanctuary as we should. And then she says, there must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. There we shall see more clearly as we are seen. We shall know as we are known. So you know what she's saying here? Look, what our focus should be on is what Christ is doing for us in the sanctuary in heaven. And if we were to do that, our lives would be cleansed from sin because in order for the sanctuary to be cleansed in heaven, we as God's people must have our lives cleansed of sin here on this earth. And you guys are just fighting over the law in Galatians and neither of you are being sanctified by that. So her purpose in writing Jones and Wagner and attaching a copy to Butler and Smith was to try to get everyone to realize that they were not entering into the sanctuary as they should. Now, Jones and Wagner were taken by surprise. They hadn't heard anything from Ellen White, but they reacted in a very conciliatory manner. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have heard that it was the personalities of Jones and Wagner that caused the brethren to reject the message? Many people have heard that. And what I'm going to show is, is that that is not a completely fair assessment. There may have been a little bit, but in reality, that was not the major issue. Jones and Wagner promised to make changes. After they received this letter, they basically said, look, we're sorry. We shouldn't have been stirring up this disagreement. That wasn't our intent, and we promised to learn from this experience. 
And so they took the rebuke as they should have. This is 1887, early 1887. Now, Butler receives this letter, and you can imagine his response. Praise the Lord. Jones and Wagner have been put in their place, and my position has been vindicated. Yeah. And, um, and so Butler and Smith go away from that letter feeling very good about themselves. Now, what happens after that is, after Ellen White writes the letter, then the Lord gives her a vision. And this provokes another letter, this time to Butler. And this is what Ellen White says. She says, That conference, 1886, was presented to me in the night season. My guide said, Follow me. I have some things to show you. He led me where I was a spectator of the scenes that transpired at that meeting. I was shown the attitude of some of the ministers, yourself, Elder Butler, in particular, at that meeting. And I can say with you, my brother, it was a terrible conference. So Butler, being overjoyed, quickly turns. My guide then had many things to say which left an indelible impression upon my mind. His words were solemn and earnest. He opened before me the condition of the church at Battle Creek. A time of trial was before us, and great evils would be the result of the Pharisaism, which has in a large degree taken possession of those who occupy important, position in the work of, important positions in the work of God. He then stretched out his arms towards Dr. Wagner and to you, Elder Butler, and said in substance as follows, neither have all the light upon the law, neither position is perfect. Ouch. Butler just thought that Ellen White had settled the issue, and now she's saying, no, neither of you have all the light. Now, remember, this is George Butler, G.I. Butler, who wrote a series of articles in the Review that said there are degrees of inspiration in Scripture. So guess what? If you think there's degrees of inspiration in Scripture, what are you going to do with Ellen White? Butler now thinks to himself, Ellen White is contradicting herself. She said J.H. Wagner in 1856 was wrong to do what he was doing. And now she's saying that we don't have the, the, all the light. And so now he's saying, you know what? <clears throat> I'm not sure I can trust everything she says anymore. There's degrees of inspiration to her writings as well. Now, this is the president of the General Conference. This is 1887. And then something else unfortunate happened. <clears throat> in leading up to the 1888 General Conference, at this particular time, Jones and Wagner were up in Oakland, California, and Willie White and Ellen White happened to be in the Oakland area before the Minneapolis Conference of 1888. Well, one of Butler's allies in Oakland, um, I don't know who it was, maybe someone here does, but anyway, someone in Oakland sends... Butler a letter and says, Ellen White, her son Willie, Jones and Wagner 
have come together. They are conspiring to come to Minneapolis to drive home the point that the law in Galatians is the Ten Commandments or the moral law, not the ceremonial. And you need to be on guard. We need to stand by our positions because Ellen White has changed. She's teaming up with these new guys that are undermining our faith. And it's up to us, the leaders of the church, to hold the guard. So that's the precursors to the 1888 General Conference. And guess who was the morning devotional speaker? E.J. Wagner. So you had the makings of an explosion leading up to Minneapolis. And in this conference, E.J. Wagner gave a series of talks on righteousness by faith from the book of Galatians. And you know, Uriah Smith admitted later, we were listening and everything that he was saying was true, but we wouldn't say amen because we were waiting for him to bring in the punchline that the law in Galatians was the moral law. And so here you have this powerful message that the Lord had given to Wagner to bring to his church to prepare his people to receive the outpouring of the latter rain. And instead, you had proud, power-seeking, envious, conniving leaders of our church who wouldn't receive a clear message from the Lord because of the issue of the law in Galatians and because of their hearts. And, you know, in that conference, in the, at, at nighttime, the, the ministers would get together just as in 1886, and they were cracking jokes and having a spirit of levity when what they really should have been doing was getting down on their knees, confessing their sins and saying, Lord, forgive me for the evil in my heart towards Brother Jones and Brother Wagner for saying that they were like this or like that. And yet they are giving a message that is being pre preached with conviction that is showing me of my need of Christ. And here you have Christ being lifted up and the brethren go back to the rooms and they're joking about Wagner. In fact, they're like, basically, Dr. Wagner was a short man. And so they would sit around and joke about how he was such a short guy and, you know, he's this, he's that. They would actually say it to him in person and it actually really hurt his feelings. I mean, the poor man, here he is trying to give a message from the Lord and his brethren that he works with are making fun of him. And that was happening at the 1888 conference. One of the, the key things that happened, Elder Butler, G.I. Butler of all things, was sick so he couldn't come. He had worked himself into such a frenzy that by the time Minneapolis came around, he wasn't well enough to attend. And so he sends a, a letter to the brethren on his side and he tells them to stand by the waymarks. And so there were two men in particular that were allies of his, J.H. Morrison and Brother Kilgore. And Brother Morrison planned to come to the platform and propose that they block any further discussion on the issue at hand. Before he did, Brother Kilgore comes to the platform and he says, 
It is so sad that we're having this discussion about the law in Galatians when our president, Elder Butler, can't be here. The next day, Ellen White gets up and says, if Elder Kilgore was guided by the Spirit of the Lord, he never would have gotten in front of the people and made the statement that he did. The other thing that happened throughout the conference, you have Ellen White sitting on the front row saying amen over and over again to what Wagner is saying. She's saying there is much light here. And of course, the brethren are saying, yep, she conspired with them. They're here to pound home the law in Galatians being the moral law. And yet here Ellen White is sitting on the front row saying, amen, there is much light here. And so the conference closed. Some good things came out of it, but the work that God had designed to take place did not happen. So after that conference, what you have is a crisis in confidence of Ellen White's prophetic authority, not only now for Butler, but he, had, he then influences Uriah Smith. And, you know, I always grew up knowing Uriah Smith as being the author of Daniel and Revelation, and Ellen White endorses that book. It's a good book. Yet in 1888, he came down squarely on the wrong side. And he's questioning her authority. Butler was questioning her authority. And there was another figure that is not often talked about. His name is Dan Jones. He served at times as secretary of the General Conference. He was on the General Conference Executive Committee. And those men, in their minds, they could not harmonize Ellen White saying that neither side had all the light. And so therefore, they questioned her authority. Ellen White says, you know what, if the brethren aren't going to receive this, let's take the message to the people. So Jones, Wagner, and Ellen White hit the camp meeting circuit beginning in 1889. They went to South Lancaster, Massachusetts. You read the reports. People had experience of repentance, revival, and reformation. You had a camp meeting in Ottawa, Kansas in May of 1889. You had one in Pennsylvania in June of 1889. And unfortunately, in response to these camp meetings, Butler and Uriah Smith write rebuttals in the Review and Herald of what Jones and Wagner are teaching in the camp meetings. So here you have Ellen White, Jones, and Wagner going out teaching the message of righteousness by faith. And then you have Butler and Smith contending with what they're saying in the Review and Herald. And if you look at the history from 1888 to 1900, you have a continued rejection of the message and of Jones and Wagner. Dan Jones, who I just mentioned, he and Uriah Smith worked together to block E.J. Wagner from teaching the covenants at Battle Creek College. Now, this was part of the message of righteousness by faith. Uriah Smith and the brethren taught there was one covenant in two phases. And you have the first phase and the second phase. Wagner and Jones says, wait a minute, no. There's actually two different covenants. There's the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant was where the children of Israel said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. We can do it, God. You just told us to keep the Ten Commandments. We will do it. And wait, Jones and Wagner come along and say, no. Don't you realize that the Bible teaches that righteousness is apart from the works of the law? You can't keep the Ten Commandments in your own strength. Righteousness is by faith. And we're going to get into the nuts and bolts in our next presentation. And so they're saying the new covenant actually came before the old covenant when God made covenant with Abraham. And then at Mount Sinai, 
the Israelites took it upon themselves to say they could keep the law of God. That's the old covenant. And so God comes along in the new covenant and says, no, I'm going to write my law into your hearts and minds because you can't do it in your own strength. And when I do that, you will be empowered to live my righteous life. And that, that was a concerning teaching to, to Butler, Smith, and Dan Jones. And so they blocked Wagner and A.T. Jones from teaching this at Battle Creek College. However, Ellen White endorsed E.J. Wagner's view of the covenant. That led to a problem with Dan Jones, who was in charge of, he was the secretary of the general conference. He twisted what she said. Where what she said was, well, what Wagner is teaching about the covenants is correct, and the spirit has been wrong in the opposition that has been manifested. What Dan Jones said was like, oh, okay, I get it. I'm sorry. I have had the wrong spirit towards A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner. Lord, forgive me. But you know what? I'm still right about the covenants and the law in Galatians. And he still held to those views. And sure enough, not very long later, he manifests the same opposition where he's blocking them from speaking at various meetings. So the spirit of opposition continues, even though he initially said, oh, I'm so sorry for having the wrong spirit. So the spirit of opposition continues. And then something interesting happened. And this is actually jumping back a little bit in time now. Guess what happened in 1891? Ellen White went to Australia. Now, when I grew up, I was just like, well, Ellen White went to Australia, and that's where she wrote the book Desire of Ages, and, you know, she did a great work there, and she did. But did you know that it wasn't God's will for her to go there? She was supposed to stay in Battle Creek to help the message that God had sent to go forward. When the brethren gave her the call, the Lord didn't give her, her any light one way or the other. He was, in essence, allowing the brethren to eat the fruit of their own doing. They were rejecting Ellen White. They were rejecting the messages that God sent through Jones and Wagner. And what the brethren realized was like, hey, you know what we should do? <clears throat> we should get Ellen White to do evangelism in Australia and build up the church there. And they said, and we can do the same thing with E.J. Wagner. We can get him to do a good evangelistic work in England. And so in 1891, he goes to England. Ellen White goes to Australia. And then A.T. Jones is left by himself in Battle Creek. And so the three people who were united in proclaiming this message of righteousness that was to usher in the latter rain and the loud cry were separated by the brethren who were opposed to the work that they were doing. And, you know, history has spelled out the result of that. And, you know, we thank the Lord for the good work that Ellen White did in Australia. But if the earth had been lightened with the glory of righteousness by faith, Australia would have gotten the message anyway. So that was what happened in 1891. Now, as, I, as we now look at what inspiration says about what happened, I'm going to try to fly through this here. This is Ellen White, Selected Messages, Volume 1, 234, 235. By exciting that opposition, Satan succeeded in shutting away from our people in a great measure. 
the special power of the Holy Spirit that God longed to impart to them. The light that is to lighten the whole earth with its glory was resisted. That's clear. It was resisted and by the action of our brethren has been in a great degree kept away from the world. That's pretty clear. And then letter 51 1895. God has given Brother Jones and Brother Wagner a message for the people. When you reject the message borne by these men, you reject Christ, the giver of the message. Now notice, she wrote that statement in 1895. There are people that say the 1888 message was only given in 1888, and anything after that that Jones and Wagner started to teach was erroneous. Yet seven years later, she's saying if you reject the message, you reject Christ, the giver of the message. And as I said earlier, Ellen White was heard over and over in 1888 in Minneapolis saying, Amen, there is much light here. In 1898, she was still speaking of stubborn defiance, disunion, and rejection of light. And notice what she said in 1902. I have been instructed that the terrible experience at the Minneapolis conference is one of the saddest chapters in the history of the believers of pre in present truth. That's 1902, 14 years later. She's saying it's one of the saddest chapters. And then notice what Willie White says. He says, the most serious feature of the disaffection was the fact that because Sister White urged the importance of the message of righteousness by faith, and because thereby she seemed to be upholding these brethren, Wagner and Jones, contrary to their judgment, the brethren, it grew into a spirit of rejection of the testimonies of Sister White. Do you wonder why we have a rejection of her testimonies today? It started way back then. It hasn't just been in the last 30 years. And this is where we come to a vision that Ellen White had, January 5, 1903. Many of you have probably read it. It's a vision of what she saw could have happened at the 1901 General Conference, which was the final opportunity at that point in that era for the church to accept this message. January 5, 1903, addressed to the Battle Creek Church. One day at noon I was writing of the work that might have been done at the last general conference, that's the 1901 session. If the men in positions of trust had followed the will and way of God, those who have had great light have not walked in the light. The meeting was closed and the break was not made. Men did not humble themselves before the Lord as they should have done, and the Holy Spirit was not imparted. I had written thus far when I lost consciousness, and I seemed to be witnessing a scene in Battle Creek. We were assembled in the auditorium of the tabernacle. Prayer was offered, a hymn was sung, and prayer was again offered. Most earnest supplication was made to God. The meeting was marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The work went deep, and some present were weeping aloud. Have you ever been in a meeting like that? 
One arose from his bowed position and said that in the past he had not been in union with certain ones and had felt no love for them, but that now he saw himself as he was. With great solemnity he repeated the message to the Laodicean church, Because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. In my self-sufficiency, this is just the way I felt, he said. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I now see that this is my condition. My eyes are opened. He had a revival. He realized he was spiritually dead. My spirit has been hard and unjust. I thought myself righteous, but my heart is broken, and I see my need of the precious counsel of the one who has searched me through and through. Continuing, the speaker turned to those who had been praying and said, We have something to do. We must confess our sins and humble our hearts before God. He made heartbroken confessions and then stepped up to several of the brethren, one after another, and extended his hand, asking for forgiveness. And again, I ask you the question, have you ever been to a meeting like that? I'll be honest, I never have. Those to whom he spoke sprang to their feet, making confession and asking forgiveness, and they fell upon one another's necks, weeping. The spirit of confession spread through the entire congregation. It was a Pentecostal season. God's praises were sung and far into the night, until nearly morning the work was carried on the following words were often repeated with clear distinctness as many as I love I rebuke and chasten no one seemed to be too proud to make heartfelt confession and those who led in this work were the ones who had influence these were the leaders of the church but had not before had courage to confess their sins there was rejoicing such as never before had been heard in the Battle Creek Tabernacle I mean, that sounds awesome. Then, and you know, I wish that this next part had, hadn't had to have been written. I wish that this really was history. Then I aroused from my unconsciousness and for a while could not think where I was. My pen was still in my hand. The words were spoken to me. This might have been. All this the Lord was waiting to do for his people. All heaven was waiting to be gracious. That's what could have been from the 1888 message. It could have led to people who were at disagreement with each other, who were at odds with each other, who felt that the other side was wrong and I've got it figured out and they don't. I'm so good, they are not. They could have come together and said, will you forgive me? I've been a complete jerk to you. I've treated you like you're just nothing and uh, I should have been like Jesus and I, I don't have that and I want you to forgive me and I want to be your brother now. That's what the Lord was trying to do. And she says, I thought of where we might have been had thorough work been done at the last general conference. An agony of disappointment came over me as I realized that what I had witnessed was not a reality. And she later said that after that general conference session, the church locked and bolted the door from the moving of the Holy Spirit. And that was all as a result of not seeing this message of righteousness by faith, which we're going to talk about in our next session, where Christ was lifted up before the people, but they held on to their cherished 
predispositions of opinions, and they would not humble themselves to confess their wrongs to their brethren. And so the Holy Spirit tried to move. The Holy Spirit was ready to come down on Seventh-day Adventists in 1901 at the Battle Creek General Conference, and the leaders of the church resisted the moving of the Holy Spirit. 1901. And Ellen White saw in vision what might have been. In recent years, there has been a major attempt to prove that while some of the leading brethren rejected the message in 1888, most accepted it, and even the opposers later repented and came to into line. As a result, we have been told our church eventually accepted the 1888 message of righteousness by faith, and we have been teaching it ever since. Now, wait a minute. What did Ellen White say that this message would do? It would cause for the outpouring of the latter rain that would lead to the loud cry that would usher in the second coming. And I'm telling you, that has not happened. And that vision of the 1901 General Conference session shows the rejection from that generation of leaders, their final rejection of that message. And by 1926, A.G. Daniels, he was General Conference president for many years, he says, the message of 1888 has never been received, nor proclaimed, nor given free course as it should have been in order to convey to the church the measureless blessings that were wrapped within it. 1926, nearly 40 years later, a generation later. In 1928 and in 1937, Taylor Bunch wrote um, two separate editions of a book called The Exodus and Advent Movements, and he was the first to make the comparison to what happened in 1888 to the experience of the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea. Now, do you know what happened at Kadesh Barnea? The 12 spies come back. 10 of them say, we can't, over, we can't take the land. The spies are too great, and only two said we can go in. And it delayed their entrance into the promised land for 40 years. Taylor Bunch, he's looking at history, and in 1928, he says, 1888, to 1928, I mean, I don't know if he thought this, but I'm just <laughs> thinking for him. 40 years, we're like the children of Israel. That was the message that would have gotten us into the promised land. Now we're in 2011. Ooh. Now, guess what happened? Do you think the leaders of the church who rejected the message, but they claimed to have accepted it, how, how do you think they liked hearing that 1888 was Kadesh Barnea. Well, what ended up happening is what we call revisionism of history. Revisionism of history. Let me give you an example of how this started. And, you know, the men that did this, as far as I know, may be very fine men. Of course, they've all passed to the rest. But notice how they established a chain of authority to describe what happened in 1888. And let me say this. The thing I haven't mentioned is after 1901, the, the alpha crisis of pantheism hit the church. And unfortunately, Wagner went out with Kellogg, and Jones did as well. And so the brethren looked at Jones and Wagner, and they said, see, those guys are off, out. But in reality, Ellen White had said, if Wagner and Jones ever were to apostatize from the faith, it wouldn't take away from the truth of the message that they gave. She almost predicted what was going to happen. But of course, these brethren had seen Jones and Wagner fall away. So they try to establish a chain of authority. First was um, an author by the name of Spalding. He wrote a, 
several volumes about the history of the Adventist church. And he quotes an author by the name of Peace, P-E-A-S-E, um, for reference to several authorities. Um, and he wrote this book in like 1949. He's quoting from a book written four years earlier. The funny thing is, is in 1962, this author, Peace, he writes another book about, and he talks about 188, and this time he quotes Spalding, who had quoted him as his authority to describe the personalities of Jones and Wagner. Now that doesn't make any sense. Peace writes the first thing about the personalities of Jones and, or, yeah, he writes the first one. Then Spalding says, I'm so thankful for Peace, who helped me to understand Jones and Wagner. Then Peace comes along again, writes some more, and he quotes Spalding to say, Spalding has helped me to understand Jones and Wagner. <laughs> I mean, that's not very clear to me. Then, then someone by the name of A.B. Olson comes along. He writes in 1966, he then quotes Spalding to give his impressions of Jones and Wagner, and um, the list goes on and on. And basically what you get is you get this circle of authority where the circle is within itself. It's like this guy writes about it, then the next guy comes along and quotes him, and the other guy comes back again and quotes the other guy who had quoted him. So the question is where were they getting their history? And they, of course, had nothing good to say about Jones and Wagner. They said that Jones and Wagner were very egotistical. They came across in a bad and harsh way, and they were the ones that were the problem. Then, this is interesting, and I'm getting close to, I'm very close to the end, and then we'll take a break. Then Leroy Froome comes along, and how many of you have heard of Leroy Froome? Leroy Froome was the mover and shaker of the book um, Questions on Doctrine. And um, he also wrote a four-volume set called The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers. He also wrote a series of books called The Conditionalist Faith of Our Fathers, which both of those volumes do a nice job of defending our prophetic faith and our prophetic positions and so forth. So <clears throat> in... Um, 1957, the book Questions on Doctrine was published. And it just so happens that around the same time, um, there were some missionaries in Africa by the name of Wheeland and Short who did some reading and they read what Ellen White said about 1888 and they said, man, this sounds amazing. Um, we should be hearing about 1888. That's the loud cry message. And so they sent some letters to the General Conference that Froome happened to answer, or he was the one to respond to them. Now, at this very same time that Wheeland and Short are coming into an interest of the 1888 message, the book Questions on Doctrine has just been published, and I'm not going to go through all that. I have a presentation on Audioverse called The History of Questions on Doctrine. But basically, the church changed our historical beliefs of, the na um, of Babylon, the remnant, the nature of sin, and the nature of Christ, and the atonement changed it completely. And even people today who tend more to those viewpoints acknowledge that Froome took things too far. Like he said Jesus um, did, he, he took human nature vicariously. He didn't really take human nature. I mean, he took human nature. The question is, which nature did he take? And Froome's saying he took it vicariously. Um, and he says that Jesus bore our sins vicariously. No, he didn't. Jesus bore our sins. So, you know, there were a number of issues with the book Questions on Doctrine. So uh, a person by the name of M.L. Andreas, and how many of you have heard of him? He, of course, 
became very upset about questions on doctrine. So he's writing these a series of letters called Letters to the Churches. And so Froome, who in reality created the mess of questions on doctrine, is trying to fend off Andreasen. And then at the same time, now these guys are coming along, Wheeland and Short, who want to know about 1888. And so he's fending off Andreasen with one hand, and now he starts to try to fend off Wheeland and Short with the other hand, and the question is why? Because what he did to Wheeland and Short was he wrote them letters and said, oh, you know what? Thank you for your letters in, of inquiry about the 1888 message. I went into the Ellen White vault. I looked at her letters, and everything's fine. And they're like, they write back, great. Show us the evidence. We'd love to see it. <laughs> and he wouldn't do it. Now, the question is why, I don't know. What I can say is this. You remember A.G. Daniels, who in 1926, wrote, he wrote the book Christ Our Righteousness, and it was in that book that he said the message had never been received. Daniels, for some reason, handpicked Leroy Froome as his protege. And he got Froome to promise him that he would bring the 1888 message out. Now, the question is, now, and Daniels ended up dying sometime around 1930, somewhere in that era. Don't quote me on the exact date. I'd have to look it up. But sometime in the 1930s, Daniels passed away. And Froome had been given the charge by A.G. Daniels to bring this 1888 message out to the forefront. Well, guess when Froome finally decided to talk about the 1888 message? He waited until 1971, 40 years later, in his book, Movement of Destiny. Now, guess what he said about the 1888 message in the book, Movement of Destiny? He said, the 1888 General Conference marked a turning point in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Up until that point, we had been trapped in legalism, and then we accepted the message of righteousness by faith, and we've been preaching it ever since. He quoted several witnesses who had been at that conference. Now, get this. He interviewed these witnesses in the 1930s. He publishes this in 1971. If you read carefully, the quotes from the eyewitnesses who were there, there's never one complete sentence from any witness. It's partial sentences all the way through of his witnesses. And the picture that he paints is one of victory that 1888 turned the history of the church, and we've been on a victorious course ever since. Movement of destiny, praise the Lord. And that's not the only thing he talked about in that book. And the question is, why did he wait 40 years? And, you know, unfortunately, he's not the only one that has continued the revisionism of history. We have, unfortunately, modern revisionists of history, especially of 1888. And I say this with all charity. Um, I want to be careful how I say this because these are human beings who are still alive. And um, one of them is actually a family friend of mine. Um, and the, there's George Knight and Woodrow Wooden. And Woodrow Wooden actually roomed with my uncle in college and seminary and knew my wife when she was growing up as a little girl. And, you know, so we're all friends. He knew my mother in college. So as a person, I like him very much. 
So please don't take this the wrong way. I'm just evaluating objectively um, what they say. George Knight wrote a book from 1888 to apostasy about A.T. Jones, and he stated that his objective from the very outset was to show that A.T. Jones was wrong from the very beginning. That's kind of a problem because Ellen White was endorsing Jones and what he was saying. Um, Wooden has written a biography recently called um, E.J. Wagner, From Physician of Good News to Agent of Division. Um, George and I also wrote User-Friendly Guide to 1888. What they teach is that the 1888 message was only given at the 1888 General Conference, and since, since there is no record of it, it's the last General Conference where they didn't take a written record of what was said. After 1888, they said, you know what, we better write down what these guys are saying. Um, so, unfortunately, we don't have an actual written record, although the book Glad Tidings by Wagner is, is a repackaged version of the notes that his white, wife took during that time. So, since there is no record of it, we don't know what it really was. Anything after is not the 1888 message, and this, this is really the heart of the problem that to me is problematic with what Knight and Whitten teach. They say Wagner and Jones really crystallized the teaching of Christ in you, the hope of glory, from Colossians 1. That is part of the alpha of pantheism where, you know, Kellogg taught that God is in everything. So if you teach that Christ is living in you, that's actually pantheism, and that if you accept that, that leads to the omega of apostasy. That's a problem because, the, unfortunately, George Nye and Woodrow Whitten are the most read authors in the Seventh-day Adventist Church about the 1888 message. And they've changed the history to make it look like Jones and Wagner were teaching pantheism with a message of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's from the Bible, Colossians 1.27. And they say, well, it's just metaphorical language. Now, let me show you a few of the statements that they make that are problematic, and this will be the last part of this presentation. <clears throat> George Knight condemns those who accept the Bible-based message of Jones and Wagner, saying that if you read their writings and accept their message, it's reading the Bible through the eyes of Jones and Wagner, which is a perilous mistake. So they're saying if you read Jones and Wagner's teachings and accept their teachings, that's a perilous mistake because... Ellen White only upheld these men because they were leading Adventism back to Christ in the Bible, not because they had the final word on theology or even had a theology with which she fully agreed. Now, try to wrap your mind around that statement. <laughs> Ellen White says they gave a most precious message, and she said that their message would lead to the loud cry of the third angel, and then Knight says, wait a minute. If you read what they're saying, that's perilous. The only reason why Ellen White said they were good is because they were leading the church back to the Bible and to Christ, but their teachings are perilous. Why would a prophet uphold teachers whose teachings were perilous and would lead you to, into the omega of apostasy? That makes absolutely no sense at all. Yet that's the spin that George Knight has placed on 1888 history. He's not the only one. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Desmond Ford. Desmond Ford condemns Jones and Wagner for um, placing too much 
value on sanctification and they didn't understand the Reformation gospel, gospel of justification alone. Let me show you one of the other problems. Again, we've been told that it was the egotism of Jones and Wagner that helped lead to the rejection and George Knight and Woody Whitten quote from a letter supposedly written by Willie White where Willie White supposedly says that yes, Jones and Wagner were egotistical. There's only one problem. Willie White never wrote that letter. So this huge source of authority that Knight and Whitten hang their hat on to say, see, Jones and Wagner had a bad spirit, he didn't even write the letter. It was actually written by D.E. Robinson, who didn't even go to the Minneapolis conference, so he wasn't there to see the attitude of Jones and Wagner. And what does Ellen White say about the spirit of, of Wagner at Minneapolis? She says, all through the presentation of his views, Wagner presented in a right spirit, a Christ-like spirit. So Ellen White says Wagner presented the message of righteousness by faith in a Christ-like spirit, and now we're told that they were egotistical and, and pompous, and that's why everyone rejected their message. Actually, no. Wagner presented the message in a Christ-like way, and the brethren rejected it. It's a very different view of history. Um, my last one, my last example, and then we'll close this meeting um, and until the next one. This is where, you know, I don't know what George Knight was looking at when he did this, but I'm just going to present to you the facts and you can take, take it and come to your own conclusions. George Knight quotes a letter again by Willie White. And here he claims that Willie White says, um, let me make sure I um, get this right. Okay, here's what Willie White says. This is George Knight speaking of, quoting Willie White's letter. William White substantiates his mother's position. He wrote to his wife from Minneapolis that, quote, much that Dr. Wagner teaches is in line with, his mother, was with what his mother had seen in vision that had led some to jump to the conclusions that, quote, she endorses all his views and that no part of his teaching disagrees with mother and with her testimonies. Then he has an ellipsis point, and then he says, I could prove all this to be false. So Willie White is saying, I could prove that all, it's, it's all false that my mother agrees with Wagner. But what did Willie White really say? What Willie White really said um, was that he was writing to ch um, counter the charge that Wagner's views were in disagreement with the testimonies of Ellen White. And he was saying, I could prove all that to be false. That's a very different interpretation. The first interpretation says, I could prove it to be all false that Wagner agrees with Sister White. The second interpretation shows that um, people were saying that Wagner's views disagreed with the testimonies and Willie White saying that's false. So we as a people, unfortunately because we are many times merely thinkers and reflectors of other men's thoughts, we just take the books written by men who have an agenda to push and in 
What I will say about this is George Knight and Woody Wooden very clearly believe that salvation is justification only, that is a legal declaration apart from any heart change, and sanctification is not part of salvation. Therefore, when they look at the writings of Jones and Wagner, and Jones and Wagner very clearly teach that righteousness by faith includes sanctification and complete victory over sin, they're going to say, no way, we can't accept that. And because Jones and Wagner later apostatized and, and, and accepted the teachings of pantheism, they've come up with this clever idea that the teaching of Christ and you, the hope of glory, leads to the, to the omega of apostasy. And yet, Ellen White uses that verse frequently throughout her writings um, as a legitimate verse that we need to experience. So, this was a more historical study. The next message will be probably a little bit more preaching. But what can we learn from that? What can we learn from the history of 1888? Well, number one is this. We are still here. Jesus has not come, which must mean we have not accepted the message. And I haven't even really gotten into what it is yet. We've just looked at the history and the spin that people have put on that history. So Jesus has not come yet because we have not accepted it. Secondly, do we have the same spirit of the brethren who had the spirit of Phariseeism so that when Christ sent a message through brothers Wagner and Jones and Wagner presented it in a Christ-like spirit, are our hearts ready to receive that kind of a message from that kind of a, of a messenger? Or are we going to be part of a group of people that will be spinning things and revising history so that we will say, well, you know, those group of people, um, you know, they need to just kind of lighten up a little bit. You know, they're, they're too focused on Jesus coming again. We need to, to, to tone down the message and, and reach people more where they are and, and you know, whatever. And do we have a spirit of opposition towards each other that doesn't need to exist? If we can come to an agreement of what truth is and how to use truth to reach the world around us, we can come into a unity of faith so that there's not so many different ways of evangelism and outreach and of getting our message to the world. And the Lord looks down on his church right now and he says, let's see, I'd like to pour out my latter rain on my people, but you know what? They can't even agree with each other on how to get the message out there, so why would I give them my Holy Spirit? And if I did give them my Holy Spirit, what would they be bringing people into? Would it be the undiluted truth or would it be part of our message with the hope that maybe someday we would share the harder truths with them later? It is truth that unites. Never forget this. Error divides. When you look at division in our church, it's because of error. Truth always unites believers in Jesus. Amen. And we as God's people, it's past time to accept truth. So I would challenge you to make 1888 your study. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts of the message in our next presentation. Let's take a 10-minute break. And um, we'll come back in 10 minutes. And in the next presentation, you're going to want to be here because what I'm going to do is I'm going to show 
how the 1888 message is the message to the Laodicean church, that the Laodicean message is the message that prepares people to receive the latter rain and the loud cry that will fit us for translation. And the reason why we are still here is, is we haven't really studied and understood the Laodicean message, which in reality is what Jones and Wagner taught way back in 1888. And what we are going to see is that when the 1888 message the Laodicean message is given as God designs for it to be given, it will lead to a shaking in the church. Mm. So you will want to be here. If you want to know what's going to bring the shaking, you'll be here in the next session. So we'll see you in 10 minutes. <laughs>